Father, this morning we come before you with hearts that rejoice that we are able to bless your name. We thank you that we are able to come into the presence of a God who knows our hearts and knows our minds. We come to the presence of a God who knows all about the week from which we have come. And so we pray this morning as we listen to your word, whether it's in the Bible hour or in the preaching of the sermon, that you will keep us free from distractions and things that may fill our mind from this coming week, from this past week, and help us to focus on your word and on Christ. We pray your blessing upon all gathered here and upon the singing of these songs of praise and that all that shall be done, that it may redound to your honor and to your glory. We give our thanks in the Savior's name and for his sake alone. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, can somebody change the projector? While we're getting the technicality sorted out, uh, it's plugged in, the message changed the input. Um, right. Right. A warm welcome to everybody. Uh, this is just a, um, a general welcome. It's, a, it's what we call welcome light, L-I-T-E. The heavy one comes later on in the sermon. So if you are, feel that you're here for the first time or for a long time, you haven't been formally welcome, uh, we'll do that later on in the morning. But you're all welcome to our first part of our service, which is our Bible hour. And we are uh, at the moment going through a series which we have entitled uh, Our Only Hope. Uh, the, sub the subtitle being The Supremacy of Christ in a Postmodern World. And we've gone through a number of things uh, already in this series, um, things concerning discipleship and other things that pertain to that. This morning we are, this morning we are going to continue with something we started last week, and that was called Christ and Culture. It is called Christ and Culture. This morning we're doing part two, and in about two weeks' time, not next, in three weeks' time, we'll do the third and last part of this particular segment of the Bible Hour. Uh, we've been looking at a number of things as we went through this last week. I'm going to do a quick refresh on some things, but I'm not going to spend much time on that as I want to get into this morning's subject as best as I can. So last week we had a question. Uh, is culture a good or a bad thing? And we kind of had a bit of discussion around that, and we, and we came to the conclusion that in some aspects culture is good, when it pertains to things that, are, uh, that exist because of God creating things in an order that ultimately as can be seen in the culture around us, especially that which is physical. But culture can also be a bad thing depending on, on what the culture is, what's driving it, and we looked at a couple of things around that, which we'll touch on this morning again, as to the components or the elements that uh, are included in the definition of what a culture is. We asked ourselves, and we're going to concentrate more on this this morning than on anything else, is on a Christian culture. Can we speak of a Christian culture? Last week we spoke more about the general aspect of culture, but today I want to really zoom in more on this as a precursor to our final talk, we will do some uh, considerations of how uh, the church is impacted by the culture and where we fit into all of that. Well, the question we asked last week was, uh, are we an opposing culture or a subculture? And that, that's a loaded term, and I'm, you will see today as I speak to you more and more about this term subculture, uh, how we look at that in the light of the church, but are we an opposing culture or a subculture? Uh, and I said to you last week that it's probably not mutually exclusive terms, but we'll have to unpack it a little bit more this morning as to which aspect are we an opposing culture, and in which aspect are we in some form or fashion or means a subculture, and we may even have to redefine that to make sure that we land on a biblical footing. Just to remind you, a subculture is a cultural group within a larger culture often having beliefs or interests at variance with those of the larger 
culture. I did take you into a very familiar portion of Scripture, which perhaps we don't normally think about as finding any definitions or links to culture, was John 17, and we all know that as the high priestly prayer. The Lord's Prayer, right? Yeah. The Matthew Prayer is the disciples' prayer. So we reminded ourselves about a couple of things there, and we saw that in In verse 6 of chapter 17, we see that there is a culture identified. Now, I'm using terms that's not there, and I'm very aware of that. I know that in some cases you may find, well, it's not there, but we will see how we have arrived at these conclusions later on in the morning. But in chapter 17, verse 6, the Lord says this. And I'm thinking about the fact that there's a group of people that he's speaking about, and so... That's what a culture is in any form, as a primary culture, as a subculture. It's a group of people who are were defined by certain elements. In verse 6, he says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept my word. So the Lord Jesus Christ is praying about a very specific group of people. Do we agree with that or we disagree with that? Was he praying for people in general? Was he praying for everybody in the world? Was he praying for every single church that just calls itself Christian? Was he praying for a very specific group of people? Those who the Father had given to him and those who were his. And so they form a group, and it's a closed group, because that group has got those who are saved, and ultimately all those who are in that group that he's praying about right here, because this group of disciples become the, the, the point from which he launches the church. It's a, it's a very fixed and defined group. And so, the question I ask on the back of that, uh, are we a subculture? What do you think? And I'm happy to take any answers. Uh, what do you think? Do you think we are a subculture? You can reserve your answers, are you? You reserve responses. Peter, are you going to be brave enough? Thanks, Peter. I'd say you can divide any culture up based on any lines, however you want to say. What's a culture and a subculture? But I'd say from a biblical viewpoint, no. We are called out. We are separate according to our view. All right. So that's your response. You're going to, are you going to hold the response or are you going to change it? Are you going to phone a friend? Are you going to keep it where you are? Are you going to... I'll go with 50-50. 50-50. <laughs> All right. We'll see how much those bits are hedged. So, a subculture is an extension of a higher level culture, right? Exactly what you've just said. It has significant similarity to the high level culture and is easily recognized as a subculture. It takes certain aspects of the high level culture and enhances or changes it to develop a more unique look and feel. For example, music is a culture. It's a subculture, but on its own it's also a culture. A subculture of music is what my generation called the rock and roll, much what they call it these days. As if you if if devolve to one more level down, that rock and roll can, has a subculture called punk rock. So that's how subcultures work. You have a high-level culture, and then every subsequent culture below that has something of what, it ha- what, what, what the original one has, entails, and it develops certain aspects down the line. So, having said that, keep that in mind, keep Peter's answer in mind, and we'll see where we go from there. So... And not only in verse 6 do we see that Christ identifies a group of people, but he, says, but he says something very specific about these people. He says in verse 11, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So it's very clear that the group of people he's praying for, that he's going to, he saves them in the world, he saves them from the world, but he leaves them in the world. He leaves them within the very uh, culture that they'd always lived in. And when I look at that verse, the way it's worded, I want to agree with Peter that I do not see the church as a subculture. I see the church as a uniquely defined culture, and we have to prove it later on, that's embedded in the general culture of the world. They, are, they have been saved, they've been changed, and they are left embedded in the culture from which they've been taken for a very specific reason. And we know what that reason is uh, from Matthew chapter 28. 
So I would rather use the term an, Im- an embedded culture as opposed to a subculture. A subculture means that you've come from the culture and you bring along traits from the culture. We have not come from the world as a subculture. We have been changed entirely. Think about this. We are in Christ. The world is still in, in sin. We are in light. The world is in darkness. We serve uh, God the Father. They serve. We are alive. They are still. So we are diametrically opposed in every serious, important, eternal sense that makes us very different from them. And nothing that we have can be drawn from that culture into which we were all born. We are all born into a world that's fallen, that's dark, that's sinful, and that's away from God. And we have been saved out of that culture, but left embedded for a reason. But not only are we embedded, we are simultaneously opposed to the current culture. That opposition is something that's very real. So again, John chapter 17, verse 14, he says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So it's clear that not only are we a very defined group, according to verse 6, not only are we still embedded in a culture that to have this foreign to us, we've now become aliens in the very world that we've been born into, uh, not only are we embedded in this culture, but we are opposed to this culture. In fact, James 4 verse 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? We cannot be friends with that culture and be friends with God. Those things are counterintuitive. They are diametrically opposed. Ephesians chapter 6 gives a beautiful picture of how that looks. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Finally, it says Paul, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole arm of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present age. This, this present darkness. This present darkness, that word present is this age, this world, this dark world, this dark age. That's what we wrestle against. Again, over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand. That withstand is, has got a sense of opposing. Oppose or withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Paul says the same things to the Colossians chapter 2 verse 5 as he uh, comes to the end of his um, account of his ministry to the church. And he uses those, that mil- that, uh, those military terms about not only standing in formation but standing firm. Uh, facing the answer of what, what come, of what comes your way. So, we said we're not a subculture. I think we can agree on that. And though I will use the term a little bit more still later on, I'm going to eventually revert to the term which I think is the more appropriate one. But, another question. Does this fact that we are opposed to the world make us a counterculture? I'm using all the loaded terms because these are terms that we use. Are we a counterculture? Explain. Who said yes? Yeah, can you Afrikaans praat? You can't hear Afrikaans, that's our besoekers hoge. Sorry, Glenn, I'm just telling you to speak English so that you can understand. We're not We're not reactive. Well answered. Absolutely well answered. And I think that the fact that I know we use it, that we have a countercultural uh, perspective or paradigm, but not only is uh, LZ's answer on the point, uh, I, w- I would be careful to use that term of the church because it has certain connotations attached to it. So if you think of what is considered to be countercultural, it's the hippie movement of the 1960s. They were highly countercultural. Uh, civil rights activists, feminist groups, 
LGBTQ2 divided by 6 over the cent of pi. They are a countercultural group. Environmental groups, think uh, Greta Thunberg, uh, punk rockers, uh, new age wellness, uh, yoga. Who's doing yoga here? No hands? Okay. Yeah, be careful. Um, yoga. So these, are, these groups are seen as countercultural, and we do not want to align ourselves with them, not by connotation, but especially by the fact that we are not trying to counter them with the world establishing the paradigm. We are opposed to them in the sense that we live a, we pres we live a life that's presented and is lived in the power of the Holy Spirit based on God's Word, and we're totally different. We're trying to win them, but we are not friends with the world. That's a very clear dynamic we have to think through, and we will see how that works through uh, next week, and uh, not in three weeks' time when we do the last uh, section of this study. I uh, should have pulled those up. I um, sometimes forget to do that, and that's fine. All right. So here was the definition of culture that we had last week. Culture is the ideas, and this is one definition, right? We are, let me say this again. The subject is broad. The subject touches on a number of things. It's very nuanced in some ways. You can approach it from different ways. Um, there are books written about this that it's amazing, uh, and definitions vary, but these are the three elements we've drawn together to try and at least get something to get our teeth into. So, very, in a very um, thin definition, culture is the ideas, the customs, and the socialization of a particular group of people or society. And uh, we say that socialization doesn't mean socializing as uh, having a braai and a sami or a Gatsby. Uh, <laughs> it means trying to influence the behavior of the people where you, that you find yourself amongst and trying to change them in the way they think and the way they do things. That is what socialization is. Any change that is brought about in a culture starts with an idea or a thought. If given enough attention, that thought translates into action. And given enough time, those actions will change a society. Question, again, does the church function in a similar way? Does the church function in a similar way in having ideas, having uh, customs, and having a way of socializing, socializing the group they're amongst? Again, those words are not words we normally use with the church, but I'm asking you that as concepts. And let's see... I know you guys are sitting there both waiting for the answer because it's not, we're not used to these terms, but let's think about that. So, does the church function in the same way in that we think? And what do we think? Do we think? Is the church called to apply its mind? Are believers called to apply their minds, their thinking? Uh, are, they, are, are they called to use their brains uh, as it is informed by the redeemed heart, uh, by the word of God, or do we park our brains in the corner when we come to church? Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We don't renew our minds, our minds are being renewed. But that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by, the, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, to not think of himself more highly than he ought, to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned him. So there is a measure of thinking that, that takes place because we have been redeemed, because we've been changed, because we have to consider things in a different way. Uh, we have to think. We have to apply our mind to things uh, that are pertinent to this life we live. Iron, you want to say something? Yeah, absolutely. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of, of God. Set your minds on things that are above. We set our minds on things that are of eternal value. It doesn't mean we don't think about everyday life. It doesn't mean we think about the nitty-gritty of the day as, as it goes by. But uh, primarily and ultimately our minds are set on things that are above. Not on things that are on earth. 
For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Philippians 4 verse 8. Finally, brothers. Finally, brothers. Whatever is true. Whatever is honorable. Whatever is just. Whatever is pure. Whatever is lovely. Whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence. If there's anything worthy of praise. Think. That word means reckon. Consider. Take into account about these things. That's where we should be applying our energies in thinking on things that are of value for eternity. So, yes, the church is called to think, much like any other culture is, caused, uh, is called to think or think and then become a defined culture. What about what we do? Does a church um, receive this wonderful salvation? And then sit like a hermit on top of the mountain and just contemplate things without doing anything about it. Not translating thoughts into action. Colossians chapter 3 verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Philippians 4 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, says the Apostle Paul, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So, our minds are required to be engaged with God's word, and in things that are of eternal value, and as we engage with those things, we should see the effects translated into what we do and how we live, and the things we accomplish in our lives. Questions? Comments? Not yet. So, if we are thinking as a culture, if we are doing as a culture, do we then also influence as a culture? And in which way do we influence? We do have influence on people around us. We do have an effect on people around us. In fact, that's why we are here. What was the commission? Matthew chapter 28. What was the commission? Going to all the world and make disciples, baptizing them. Right. So we have an influence. We have a, a, something to do, and that do has an effect in the lives of people we come in contact to, into contact with, depending on how God is using us to reach that particular person or people. Colossians 2.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So, what is one of the groups that we influence as believers? Colossians chapter 3 verse 16. Let the word of, God, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and, teaching and admonishing one another. We influence each other. We edify each other. The very fact that we are influencing each other by engaging with each other in the church uh, through the gifts that we have. We edify, we change, we admonish, we grow, and so we are having this group of people uh, develop uh, because of the word of God being effective in their lives. Matthew chapter 5 verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. We have an impact on the world. We don't always change the world, but we certainly have an impact. Romans chapter 1 verse 16. Here's where change does take place if God so chooses to use us to, to present the gospel. And when the Holy Spirit takes that word and changes their hearts, there is change on people around us with whom we are in contact with because of the change like we have. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So whether it's in the church, whether it's the world, or with unsaved people, we as a group of people, and for the time being we call ourselves a culture, a Christian culture, we do not just live in a world detached from the world. We don't live in a world isolated from the world. We don't live in the world and we remove ourselves from engaging with the world. 
We choose how we engage, we choose how we get involved, and we choose how to impact them based on the scriptures, but we are embedded in this society, in this culture, so that we can make a difference. And if we don't make a difference, we're not fulfilling the Lord's, the, the Lord's command in Matthew 28. LZ. Yes. We don't put our face on beer cans. <laughs> so, we influences, why are influences influencing? What is their purpose? What is their goal? What is their purpose? Why do they do that? Robert? Well, honestly, they're trying to influence you to buy certain things or yeah. do certain things, do certain things. You think that's the primary reason? Well, their primary reason is because if they're good enough, they make money. Ah, so two things. Yeah. If they can get you to buy things, great. But uh, first of all, it's for self aggrandizement and self enrichment. Dylan Mulvaney wouldn't care. Two, two cents if you bought Bud Light or not, as long as he gets the money, he gets the fame, he gets the fortune. That's what it's in for. And influencers are generally in it for the fame, the fortune, um, for having an online following. It, makes it, 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 it feeds their ego, and because their ego is fed, it's all about them. They think only about themselves. Uh, and yes, in the, in the process, they may sell a product or they may not. But influences, influences as we know them today, influence for a selfish, sinful uh, desire. They are motivated by their own uh, sinful desires. The, if we, I wouldn't want to call ourselves influences, again, because of the connotation, but we are here to affect the world. We're not here to leave the world un, unimpacted. Robert. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's where true, where, where true life and eternal life lies. Is, yes. Is being like Christ, is becoming believers. Because all that other stuff is going to fade away. And yeah, no, you're right. And that is, so I, as, you're right. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that's the imitation we'll do. We will do that imitating. And the influencing, the influencing we do is because we're trying to bring them to Christ. They must be like him, not like us. Uh, I mean, this is exactly why, uh, and we'll talk about this uh, in, the final, in the final segment, this is exactly why we have the increase in gender-based dysphoria, transgenderism, because entire swath of young, influenceable people are being influenced by influences. I never thought of those three, that word into a sentence, you know, use it three times in a row. But that's, that's, that is exactly it. People become impressionable and they're seeking something to follow. They want, the strange thing is, they want to be um, unique, but they're so all alike. Uh, uh, it's, it's a weird concept. They say, well, we want to be different to our parents. We want to be different. They're all alike. They're clones of each other. And that's what influencers do. Yeah, good question. And um, we should not be doing that. We should be influencing the world for Christ, in the way that Christ has determined, based on the word of Christ, so that Christ becomes the central uh, figure in that person's life. Christian culture. Let's get a definition. So, I would say that the Christian culture is more 
it's, it's, it's better phrased as the church. Um, I would not use that term all the time. I wouldn't use a term outside of a um, format like this because I think it kind of diminishes what the church really is. I think Christian culture as a phrase needs to be used in a certain context, uh, needs to be used with a certain understanding, but uh, the Christian culture really is the church. And that's a term we're all comfortable with, right? If I'd spoken about the church up until now, you wouldn't have felt uncomfortable. But by using certain terms, it does jar us a bit, but I think I want to bring us to understanding that we're living in a world where very often the words that we are used to feeling comfortable with uh, doesn't resonate with them. And we need to be able to reach people sometimes in a way that they understand. Here is a, um, a quote from uh, a book, Man and Woman in Christ, Man and Woman in Christ, an examination of the roles of men and women in the light of Scripture and the social sciences. And, the trans- and this is the translation. Sorry. Gremlins. I will get there. Apologies. All right, it's the slide has unfortunately gone belly up. But let me give you the let me give you the quotation. Listen very carefully. The claim of the claim of the New Testament, translated into contemporary terminology, is that Christianity is God's culture. That is the revelation of God's views on the way human beings should live their lives. In other words, Christianity teaches a human culture that is in harmony with God's purpose and nature. Although the New Testament does not use the word culture, it recognizes the cultural implications of its message. It recognizes the conversation that the conversions to Christianity requires a radical change in a person's or society's way of life. Uh, or society's way of life. This is a quote from a man by the name of Stephen B. Clark, and that quote was made in a book written in 1980. That quote is 43 years old, and it's as appropriate today as ever before. So, we do not think of the church as a culture, and yet every church, to some degree, takes on the culture within which it is embedded. We're not a subculture, but we do take on something of the culture. And that's not always a bad thing. So, think, for instance, language. We take on the language of the culture in which we find ourselves. Uh, We pick up slang from what the culture and we use it in the church from time to time. Uh, there's some of you who will have gone to a church today and they said, we welcome you all to church this morning. That's a slang that's used from that culture and they're used in church. And there's nothing wrong with that. We do it all the time. We know we have times when we have fellowship, right? And uh, we have things like kusistas, uh, some words like that, and melkheim. It's unique to our culture. I mean, Glenn is drooling but not sure what I'm talking about. Sister, some verses and mouth, it's all delicacies, brother, that uh, we get a chance to try sometime, I'm sure. <laughs> but, yeah, that is unique to our culture, and we do that, right? We, we use it. It doesn't harm us. What about um, more slang? We say things here like, uh, just now, meaning what? Hours later. I'll see you just now, and I'll see you four year, four hours' time. Um, but you say, well, when we say, I'll see you now, now, I'll see you in a few minutes. Uh, now, now means I'll see you in a few minutes, but just now, a few hours. And when Matthew does something wrong, his mom says to him, Matthew, come here right now. Right? Just now means hours away. And now, now means a few minutes away. And just now means you come here just now. You're in trouble. Right now. Right now. We understand that. I think it's... Don, did you learn it here or did you bring it with you? <laughs> so there are things that belong to culture, the culture we find ourselves in, that we do carry with us. But those are benign things. Those things don't change the way we think, what we do, or how we consider to influence others. So the church is a culture uh, with, u- with, uniquely dif- with, unique in- with unique elements. The question we have to ask is, uh, is there biblical evidence for these elements? Are there examples in Scripture of these elements 
what we think, what we believe, what we do, how we impact others, and do they define us as a culture? I need to find the right slide. Yeah, I'm on the right slide. Okay, here we go. So, what we think. What we think defines who we are. John 17, verse 7, we already spoke about that in the Lord's Prayer. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I've given them the words that you gave me. And they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they believe that you sent me. This Christ praying for his disciples. And look at how he speaks about what they know, what they heard, what they received, and what they believed. The thinking was based on the words of Christ. Our thinking is based on the words of Christ. They heard him audibly. We have those words in Scripture. Obedience to his words is foundational to our beliefs. That is how we as a church, and I'll use the word again, culture, forms our beliefs based on the words of Christ. We have scripture. From scripture we will derive a theology. From the theology we will, we will build up a, a, a body of doctrine, and that doctrine will feed into our dogma. And so theology derives ultimately from God and his self-revelation. The understanding of theology informs how we arrive at the doctrines we espouse. These doctrines form the basis of our dogma, and the dogma forms a biblical belief by which we live. We call this orthodoxy. That's what we believe. In, in all of the orthodoxy we have, it, 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 it covers everything that we believe, everything that we know and understand from God's Word, and it shapes the way we think, and that shape of the way we think eventually uh, works out into how we do things. So, if that is our orthodoxy, what about what we do? Can we find that definition from Scripture that gives us a reason to believe that we do things that are according to God's Word? Well, what do we do? We disciple, right? That's one of the things we do, and it's the primary thing we do before someone becomes part of the church. We disciple. John chapter 17, verse 18 says this, As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world to do something. They've been sent into the world to do what? Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. By being disciples and making disciples, it's done within the context of living right in the right way. We make disciples and we are disciples by living the right way. And when we live the right way, when we are living in a right way of living, we call that orthopraxy. Here's a quote. Biblical orthodoxy, the things that we believe, the body of truth that we uh, base all that we do on, encompasses orthopraxy, the outcome of that orthodoxy. Both right doctrine, which is orthodoxy, and right living, which is orthopraxy, are absolutely essential and totally inseparable from the true child of God. This is the consistent teaching of Christ himself. If you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. John 8, 31, 2, verse 32. Furthermore, Scripture does clearly and consistently teach the primacy of right belief as a foundation of right behavior. What we believe governs our behavior. In other words, righteous living is properly seen as a fruit of, of authentic faith. That quote from Grace to You 2016, a podcast by Dr. MacArthur, do good works require good doctrine? The question is asked, do good works require good doctrine? Yes, good works do require good doctrine. The works that are of value, uh, the works that we do that are that's honoring to God, uh, requires that it starts from a point of good doctrine. Orthodoxy. Uh, leads to a proper orthopraxy. So, if orthodoxy is what we think, and, if, and that controls all that comes from that, and if orthopraxy is what we do, right living, how do we influence? What is the means of influence? I couldn't find a word to match that alliteration, but we do influence through preaching. John chapter 17, verse 20. I do not ask for this only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's the unsaved. The unsaved 
are influenced when we not only have a right belief and the right uh, way of living, but that influences what we do in the world. And so we go out and we influence others through the preaching of the gospel. Uh, the, the, in John 17, the Lord's praying for those who will be saved because of the disciples going out and making disciples. Again, Matthew 28, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What do they be teaching? They be teaching the very words they had from Christ. So without those words that becomes the foundation for our uh, right way of thinking, we will not know how to live a life that is a right way of living. And without those two, we cannot go out and be an effective tool in the hand of God. The Christian culture is a culture who influences those around them with Scripture. Questions? Last slide. Comments? So, what do we make of all of this? I mean, we've been going around for two weeks now talking about culture and uh, a, a, a worldly culture and a culture, a Christian culture. What do we do with all of this? We've seen that there are two distinct groups of people in the world who coexist in a single environment, but who function according to diametrically opposed cultures. We are embedded, not the same. We are embedded, we're not a subculture. We are embedded, we're not a counterculture. We are a different life form altogether. We haven't been recycled from the old life. We made over a new, we are new creations. Now we still look the same. Our bodies are still subject to the same frailty and things because we're still living in this world, in this body, in this environment, in this particular uh, uh, created culture. But we are different. So we don't take our lead from the culture. We take our lead from the scriptures. And that causes us to then be able to be prepared to change the culture. The first culture is centered, that's the worldly culture, is centered around ungodly men who think in an ungodly way, who indulge in ungodly practices, and who inflict ungodly influences on others. The scripture calls that culture the world. This is how John describes this culture, this world. 1 John 2.15 do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. That is the culture from which we've come. That's the culture in which we've been embedded. And that's the culture in which we worship, but we are not a subculture of a culture. And this is important when we... Uh, consider how we are being impacted by the culture in very real terms. The other culture also lives in this world, geographically speaking, and is, and is exposed to all the sinful things the world system indulges in, morally speaking. We see it. We live in the face of sin every single day. We are fairly, live in the face of temptation every day. And we live in, the, in a world that is seething with immorality. We're exposed to that. Uh, how we deal with it obviously depends on our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy. Uh, in a world system, but it's a diametrically opposed to the sinful culture of that world, spiritually speaking. This exposure is inevitable, but the influence is resistible. The exposure is inevitable. We, we, have, we haven't been taken out of the world. In fact, Paul says, if we don't engage with the unsaved, we're going to be taken out of the world. But we don't, we're not, we are left in the world. And though we are in the world and exposed to these things, it does not mean we cannot resist them. Titus chapter 2 verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. We can resist. This culture we are part of can resist every other culture throws at us. But we need to make sure our orthodoxy is right, our orthopraxy is right, and we determine to live according to God's word. This culture, this Christian culture, that lives in a self-controlled way is called the church. The challenge that the church faces is how to resist the influence of the worldly culture from first invading our space, then invading our thinking, and ultimately invading our 
actions or influencing actions. The world gets in in an insidious way, small steps at a time. In fact, they take the idiom of how to achieve a big thing. They take small bites at the elephant as they invade our lives. Small things that we are, are unaware of at times, and those things make inroads. Think of some of the things that they use to invade our lives as Christians, as people who name the name of Christ. How do they invade our lives? Music. Yes. A way is it even closer to home? <laughs> I think so, but um, uh, I'm alone in that one. Well, let's think of these things. Schools. Today, this is the, the sowing ground for this kind of thing. Your children, if you have uh, children at school, and we're going to see that very clearly in the next uh, segment in two weeks' time. Your children are becoming the mechanism whereby this culture of this world is invading your home, invading what you do, invading where you think because they work through those areas. Work. At work, we are, those of us who are working, are consistently being coerced to comply with a worldview that is ungodly, anti-godly, unscriptural, unbiblical, and is of the devil. And we are, we are being coerced little by little to take one small step at a time. Don't disagree when you're asked, do we all agree because they need the agreement of the entire department that we can now have um, same-sex toilets, unisex toilets? Don't agree. Try and start at that level. When they start saying, well, can we affirm at least that we will recognize others' pronouns? Don't agree. The minute you agree, you've lost the battle. And so slowly they invade our space. Recreation. The sports we, we, we participate in, be extremely careful. It's a, it's a way that we get locked into certain systems without thinking about it. And what about, in, what about interests? Music. Uh, the movies. Um, yoga. I say for the second time this morning. Be very careful. These things are insidious, and yet before we realize it, we are in, we've got a vested interest in it in some way or another, we've gone into far to, to pull back so we don't want to seem silly or unscientific or uneducated or uncivilized. We don't want to be um, called flat earthers and dinosaurs, so we'd rather go along. But this is the thin edge, thin edge of the wedge, and this is the world we are called to resist, to oppose. <clears throat> Another quote from uh, Stephen B. Clark in his book, uh, Man and Woman in Christ, an examination of the roles of men and women in light of scripture and the social sciences. He says this, <clears throat> the, script the scriptural opposition, the scriptural opposition to the world it's not an opposition between spiritual things and material things. Be very careful. This is not a dualistic thing. We will consider this when we go through Colossians. It's not about spiritual things being good and material things being bad. Or divine things and created things. As opposition to the world often came to mean for later Christians. Rather, Scripture speaks about an opposition between God's people living in God's social order according to God's way and the non-Christian people's living according to their own customs. It is an opposition between two social groupings and two cultures. This is a real opposition. It's something that is in our face every day, and we become desensitized to it at so many levels. We need to recover that ground. We need to reconscientize ourselves about the danger we face when we live in this world and become assimilated into the culture. You all thought Borg, right? No, this culture is worse than Borg. You can assimilate in this culture and you can be drastically changed. So, any questions? In closing, there's no questions. The culture we are facing, they have a frontal attack. They are not shy. They're not scared. They're not timid. They have a full frontal attack. In fact, when I think about the attack, I think about a very famous quote that uh, most of you have heard in some way or another. We shall fight in the, on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. We shall fight in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We will never surrender. 
Winston Churchill. And that was his way of spurring on the British people to win a battle which most thought they would never win. And they won. Those words alone were fighting words. It also defines the attitude of the culture of this world as it makes inroads into the church. They're hitting us from all fronts and they will not surrender. They are determined to make inroads into your life and my life and change the way we think and live permanently. They've taken over the narrative of the public square as a challenge to the authority of divine creation and the creation mandate. They have controlled the narrative about what creation is and what you and I are and how we, are, how we come to this world and what God has designed is being questioned at a very uh, uh, simple, basic level. They have taken over the narrative. They have taken over the schools and they take over your schools day by day and we're going to consider this in a very uh, detailed way. The schools are being taken over and they are successfully challenging the authority of divinely appointed parental authority. They are, they are challenging that at every level. When a teacher says to, your, to a child that your father and mother doesn't affirm your identification of your gender, come to me, I'll be your mother and your father. And they do that. And they take care of the schools. And they take care of the pulpits. This is shocking. But they are taking over evangelical pulpits as they challenge the very authority of Scripture itself. And we will hear and see how this gradual approach has got to the point where right now, once churches were once stable, solid, evangelical, middle-of-the-road churches preaching the gospel and preaching a very clear orthodoxy are now saying, maybe there's no harm in just considering this or that. We'll see that. We will consider the narrative, the schools and the pulpits as it's been challenged by a culture that's foreign to us when we look at this in about uh, three weeks' time. If I close, and I'll give you three minutes for a cup of coffee. Questions? John. I think it's important to keep in mind as you look at the Winston Churchill quote especially, uh, that our goal is not to win the culture. Yep. And I think we feel very tempted to equip ourselves to win arguments, which is quite easy when you look at the madness of the world. <laughs> um, but as we looked at the idea or the ideas of culture versus the church, which is propositional statements, it's truth claims, um, and it is prescribed uh, to us. So the, the, the closer we are in honoring the Lord, the more similar churches will look transculturally, so across the world. But the more you drift, anything goes. Absolutely. So the believer knows what they should do and where they should go, whereas the one who rejects will go anywhere and follow anything. So, yes. yeah, that's... So not to win the culture, but to influence, but leave the results to God. I mean, Absolutely. We cannot, we, cannot change, we cannot change men's hearts, yeah. So we'll pick up that next week.